Let's pray. Gracious God, we say thank you for gathering us today. today. The Lord, thank you for your word uh, as it was read this morning. The Lord, we know that there is power in the reading and hearing of your word and that what we add as ministers and preachers uh, pales in comparison to what the word does through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, be with us. Uh, God, my hearts and my thoughts, dear Lord, edit what needs to be edited so that your people will hear what it is you want them to hear. We lift you up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How did I get here? It's part two. So we're going to finish up the chapter. Hebrews 12 and 1 says this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I think that part of the reason that so many of us struggle with sin And the tools of the enemy is because we fail to acknowledge that any of us on any given day can fall prey. Maybe we think if we don't talk about it, it will go away. The funny thing is that we will sing all of the songs about Jesus. We'll lift our hands in worship, but we'll be privately going through spiritual warfare. That's why when Jesus was walking with his disciples in Matthew 16, 23, and Peter refutes what Jesus is ultimately going to have to go through when he tells them his ultimate mission on the cross, he says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because when he saw the enemy show his face and realized that, that Satan was trying to confuse his followers, he didn't ignore it. He called it out and he spoke against it. The writers of the gospel knew the power of sin. The Old Testament writers knew the power of sin. God knew that sin could cause us to struggle, which is why he chose to send his son Jesus to be the answer to sin that humanity didn't have. So much of what God does is to free us from the struggle of sin and keep us in right relationship with him. That's why God will give us warning signs that lets us know that we are about to make a mistake. He will give us signs or send people to stop us in our tracks. Most times we are so determined to do the thing that we have set out to do that those signs don't often get our attention. We see that in this story with David. In the same way, God will also give us opportunities to confess, to stop, to consider what we've already done. But again, oftentimes, sinfulness is so embedded in us, our first inclination is to avoid the consequences at all costs. And what we don't realize is most of the time we, when we find ourselves in sin and refuse to submit to the Lord, we just make matters worse. 
I don't know that the Lord wants to see any of his children hit rock bottom. But many of us, like David, oftentimes find ourselves there. I'm going to share a story with you all that I hope you all don't judge me. Uh, it's a story from my childhood that I am um, not necessarily proud of. I told you all I was like three bad habits away from being perfect. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those bad uh, habits. <laughs> it was a s- story from my childhood, so, and it was one of the defining moments with my mother. Uh, when I was about 11 or 12, we lived in a two-flat apartment on the south side of Chicago. I couldn't have been any older than 11 or 12, and my sister and I attended a grade school on the other side of town. We had this really long, crazy commute. We had to walk a mile to the bus stop. We took three buses, so it was three different transfers. Um, and then we had to walk a mile to the school that we were going to. So we were the definition of latchkey kids. The two flat that we lived in was owned by a really good friend of my mom that she had met in undergrad. They were both nurses. Uh, This woman owned a few properties. And as we were kind of bouncing back from uh, just challenges of my parents' divorce at a young age, we uh, were living in this really small two flat in the Roseland neighborhood. This woman was kind. She was a really nice lady. And she lived on the first floor of the two flats. Uh, with her children and her grandson. I remember this so vividly because one of her children was my arch nemesis. (laughs) She was a nemesis because she was several years older than me. She was a lot taller than me because I was pretty short back then. Not that I got tall now, but... (laughs) Uh, She was bigger than me and she was mean, okay? She would call me names, she would tease me, she would push me and my sister around, she'd punch us sometime. And my mom had given me, and I had a way of handling things back then. I was a bit of a fighter, you know, they what they call a Napoleon complex. So any other place, if somebody said something to me I didn't like, I would, you know, quick punch in the face. I don't condone violence with any kids in the room. No, no, I don't kiss John White. This is my story. I'm ashamed of it. Remember, I said that in the beginning. (laughs) And so, but my mom had told me, gave me a strict rule, you never, ever, ever touch a woman. And so I knew that I had to let this kind of stuff happen. Um, So I was pretty upset. And as fate would have it, I got my chance at payback. It was a rainy day. It was a dark and stormy afternoon. And we had trekked all the way back home from school. And as I made my way up the porch, I noticed this thing that was calling my name. It was the backpack of my arch nemesis sitting on the porch. And instantaneously, I came up with this diabolical plan. I sent my sister upstairs. I looked around to make sure nobody was looking. I unzipped the backpack. And I slung it in the alley next to the house. And what went flying was her school books, her homework, her notepads. And I watched excitedly from my porch. It's everything she had in that backpack got wet and drenched. Yes. (laughs) Sweet vindication. I had gotten the chance to pay back my arch nemesis. And more importantly... I had gotten away with it. 
or so I thought. I read this scripture today too many times to count. I often say to myself, David, you had to know you were going to get caught. David, what was your moment? I mean, what was your motivation? Then I had a moment of clarity. Or maybe it was graciousness. I think about how embarrassed I am when I make a mistake on accident. You know how that feels when you accidentally do something wrong and you're embarrassed? But at least there's something about an accident that gives you a way out to say, like, I didn't mean to do this on purpose. And we still struggle to apologize or own up when we do things accidentally. So how much more embarrassed, how much more ashamed are we when we make mistakes intentionally? David was in a place where he had intentionally done something wrong and he was much more concerned with the earthly consequences than the eternal ones. Say it again, he was much more concerned with the earthly consequences than he was with the eternal ones. See, David had already been disgraced by Hanan, son of Nahash. He had sent his men as a gesture of kindness, and what he got in return was his men shaven, had their beards shaven half off, had their clothes stripped half off. They were ashamed. They had placed this shame on David. And, and, and maybe David was suffering from the fact that his name didn't strike the same fear as his enemies as it used to. They didn't respect David as much as he did. And he would be avenged by defeating the Ammonites in war. But maybe in this situation, like the other, David was afraid of the public embarrassment that would happen to him if this thing got out. And so he had to ensure this wouldn't be made public. And this wise king, in the midst of all of this collusion and making sure this thing that he had done would never be known, had forgotten one thing. God was watching. What are those things that you have professed to take to the grave with you? What are those secrets that you hope no one will ever find out? What are those things that you are so ashamed of that you would rather hold them tightly to save face and submit them to God? I wonder. A few days had gone by. I thought I was in the clear. I was feeling pretty good about myself and succeeding in my diabolical plan that I had concocted on the spot. Then one day my mom came home. And the thing about my mom, you guys met her. She's pretty tiny. She's a short lady. But that woman is scary. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I'll, we don't have any like mandatory reporters in here other than me, right? Because when I say it like that, woman gives you whoopings. Like, listen, I got, I got stuff. <laughs> that lady is scary. <laughs> and she came in and she started yelling my name and she pronounced it wrong. And listen, when my mom pronounced my name wrong, I knew I was in trouble because my name is pronounced Xavier. And when she asked that extra Z, when it's Xavier, where are you at? I knew I was in trouble because she was one of the only people that pronounced it right. So she, (laughs) when she pronounced my name wrong, I knew that I was in trouble. Could this thing that I had done be known? She said, I talked to the neighbors downstairs and she said that you threw her daughter's book bag in the alley and got her papers wet and all her school books. Is that true? 
Here's the thing you have to know about this moment. I was many things growing up. A liar wasn't one of them. So I knew my mom was going to believe whatever I told her. So I looked her in the face and definitively said, no. (laughs) In that moment, I did not consider what the result of my dishonesty would be. All I knew, it was that my mother was mad and I didn't want any part of that punishment that was going to come. Or that spanking that I would get if I admitted to this thing that I was done. My mom walked away. That was it. I was clear. I had gotten away with it. So I thought. David was so bent on covering up this mess that he didn't care who he hurt in the process. All he cared about was making sure this thing was not known. If you look at verses 14 through 16, it says this. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdrew, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. David went through great lengths to cover this up. He, he, he for one, he, he sacrificed Uriah's life and the life of many other men. Scripture tells us at this point, David had written Uriah's death sentence. And in a cruel sense of irony, he sent it back with Uriah himself. Imagine Joab's surprise when he gets this letter from the king delivered by Uriah only to open it and read that the king had essentially sentenced Uriah to death. I wonder if Uriah knew. I wonder if Uriah had peeked at it on the way. I don't know about you. I probably would have like because I wasn't. Ah, David, you tripping. I, <laughs> I'd have been in the land of the Ammonites somewhere, but. Uriah takes this back to Joab. And Joab was instructed to send Uriah to the front of the battle. He couldn't just send Uriah alone, however, because that would have been too obvious. So he had to send several men to the front, to the fiercest part of the battle, the part of the battle that would most likely be heavily defended. And this was most likely the outer wall of the city. And so now David was so determined to cover this thing up. Not only did he put Uriah's life in jeopardy, but he put the lives of many of his faithful soldiers. And if any of you are like me and you've watched uh, the Lord of the Rings and you see that ultimate battle, uh, you know that the wall is the fiercest part. And you know that the people who are on the wall have the advantage. So even though the soldiers may have the numbers and they're coming up against the wall, the archers from the top can fire downwards. The people at the top can throw stones down. There's all of these things that they can do. So it's almost a definite thing that if you get sent to the wall, if you get sent to the front, that you're probably not going to make it. So not only was David risking his men's lives unnecessarily, but he was also being pretty reckless about how he was going about it. He was making sure that Uriah would pass, but there were other men who were casualties of this decision. But isn't that what rock bottom is? When all we care about is ourselves. When all we care about is what we want. Getting out of the mess that we created and doing it recklessly at all cost. 
The men that died weren't the only sacrifice given to cover David's sin. Because David was also sacrificing Joab's reputation as a leader. You see, if you read chapter 10, it goes into extreme detail about Joab's military strategy. And one of the things that you walk away with was not just that David's men had defeated the Ammonites, but what you realize is that Joab was a military genius. As a matter of fact, Joab was so good at what he did when David was at home chilling on the roof, he sent Joab in his stead. And how many of you know that you only send your best to represent you when you're not there? And so he sent Joab. And so now Joab was making this really silly military mistake at the behest of the king. Joab was making this horrendous tactical mistake that cost lives and the battle to some degree his reputation. But this would ensure that David would get away with it all. The funny thing about it is that even at this juncture, God was watching. My mother came back to me visibly agitated a few days later because I had told her no. And like any good parent, she defended me against those accusations. She vehemently told her dear friend and landlord that her son would never do anything like what he was being accused of. She told her and assured her that I had not done this thing. They apparently went back and forth to the point where their relationship was damaged because what was set in motion was two good friends who were fighting to defend the honor of their children. So she asked me again, Xavier, did you do this thing? They seem to be convinced that you did it. I being emboldened in my cover-up skills and feeling that I was way in too deep at this point, I doubled down and said, I have no idea who did it. Maybe she did it herself. Maybe she's trying to frame me. Maybe Aisha did it. I don't know who did it, but it definitely wasn't me. I didn't care that I had potentially damaged a friendship that was older than I was. I just didn't want any trouble. And again, thinking I was clear that I was free. But the joy that I felt in the beginning was starting to disappear. The funny thing is, I was too consumed with getting out of trouble that it didn't dawn on me that my mom had circled back and asked me again, which is something that she never did. So I should have known that something was up. But again, isn't that rock bottom? The things that lead us there that that at one point brought temporary joy no longer seem as joyful. And the rationale and the reasoning that we once had that helped us make good decisions goes out the window. David was so lost, he didn't see that people saw him. In verses 17 through 24, it gives a detailed account. It says, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. 
Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's answer may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall who killed who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in the beds? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. You know, Joab must have knew David pretty well. Because he was anticipating uh, David responding to him much like David initially responded to Nathan. So he said, here, go tell the king what happened. And if he starts going off about, oh, that was a stupid decision. Why did you do that? Simply say Uriah the Hittite is dead. See, that was Joab's way of letting him know, I see you. I know what you wanted. And what you wanted happened. Joab was letting the king know in no uncertain terms. I did what you asked me to. Of course, this didn't make sense. Of course, this decision was stupid. Of course, this decision cost men. Of course, this decision came with consequences. But this was what you wanted. He says, who killed Abimelech? Which harkens us back to Judges chapter 9, verses 50 through 7, when they were in the midst of battle and Abimelech unwisely went to the wall and the woman from the wall threw a millstone down and crushed his head. He didn't die, but he had one of his soldiers come and finish him off because he didn't want to be killed by a woman. This was also Joab's way of letting David knew that he knew that a woman was involved. That maybe this thing that he had done was more known than he thought it was. So David, like us, sometimes everybody else can see that we have a problem, but we can't. David, David was exposed. This thing was known. But somehow, some way, he thought that he was so smart that people didn't notice him sending messages back and forth. He thought that he was so smart that people didn't notice Bathsheba coming into the, to the castle and leaving. He thought he was so smart that he was asking his men to do things that were uncorrect, uncharacteristic of soldiers. He thought that he was going to trick a military genius. And that's how it is when we hit rock bottom sometimes. We don't realize that we are exposed. That people can see us even though we can't see ourselves. And then it says in verse 25 through 27, as, as, as the soldier gives this recount, that David offers this false, uh, false comfort. It says, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Excuse me. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to Joab. David, the military leader, the warrior, the fighter who did not like to lose, brushed off the death of his soldiers in this battle because he was convinced that he had covered this thing up. His men are worried 
and defeated. The scripture goes on to tell us that when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. Then goes on to say this, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. His men are worried and defeated. Bathsheba is mourning the loss of her husband. David is kicking up his feet, comfortable, feeling accomplished. He's finally gotten this over with and just in time for him to marry Bathsheba and have this kid and at least give the appearance that this was all legit. But this thing that David did displeased the Lord. The reader is told something that David has seemingly forgotten that God was watching. Though David was a man after God's own heart, the chosen king, God had called him to shepherd the people with the same care that he had his sheep many years ago. And God watches he set home when he should have been out with his men at war. God watches he strolled leisurely about the castle without purpose, making himself acceptable to temptation. God had sent him sign after sign after sign that he ignored. God watched as he lusted after another man's wife. God watched as he summoned another man's wife. God watched as he committed adultery. God watched as he attempted to coerce a good man into sin to cover up his mess. God watches David frustrated at his failure, murdered many of his own faithful men to cover up his mess. God watches David try to take everybody down around him. And God watched when David arrogantly married the wife of the man he had killed and attempted to go on with his life as if everything was okay. God was not pleased. And God was going to let him know soon enough he had waited long enough to let David think he was in the clear. At some point, out of guilt, I confessed to my mother. And to my surprise, my mom already knew. What I didn't know was that a neighbor across the street had seen the whole thing and let my mom and the landlord know this thing that I had done. And so my mom coming to me was simply her trying to get me to confess to restore our relationship that I was damaging by lying. I had failed. And she gave me a talk about trust, one that I never forgot, one that I use with my nephews, and one that I use with my daughter to this day. But I had done this. Had this perfectly good relationship with my mother, like many of us have with God. And we find ourselves in patterns and places of sin that destroy that relationship. Scripture tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But instead of confessing, instead of facing the music, instead of accepting the wrong that we have done, we do everything in our power to try to clean it up. We try to hide and <laughs> clean it. But all we ultimately do is make it worse. 
We're so ashamed. We're so guilt ridden. We so refuse to accept the consequences that we'll settle for this. When God is trying to give us this. Something clean, something fresh, something new. The scripture says that God had seen this thing that David had done and that God was displeased. And we know that God had the final word. That there was something yet that God had to say, that there was something more coming. But the something more that was coming, even though it felt like it was going to be worse, like there was more consequences to come, that ultimately God responds to us in the order to take us from this to this. And that process may be painful. Process may be hard. That process may be uncomfortable. But God doesn't want you to have this. God doesn't want you to settle for messy and covered up in sin and shame when you can be washed white as snow. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There was more to come for David. We'll talk about it consequences in a couple weeks. Next week, we will really dive into chapter three of the book. We'll go back to the beginning so we can look forward. We'll talk about family of origin stuff. Because if any of you are like me, I don't think we escape our households as adults without family stuff. But the reminder and encouragement for me today is scripture says that God had seen this thing, and he was displeased. But God's displeasure with our sin, God's displeasure with our brokenness, is not ultimately to destroy us or end us, but it's to bring us to a place of redemption. Amen.